0: And so committing adultery on him brings that much hurt, that much pain, that much abandonment, because God is infinite. We're not, but we're hurting him to the depths that he can be hurt. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, A podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to share from your word. I thank you for the listeners who are here to be blessed by your word. I ask, Lord, that you would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, uh, we know we can only take one day at a time, and we know the time does not even time confines you. You are confined by nothing. You are righteous and holy and all-powerful and everywhere present. You are the I am that I am. You've always been. Lord, we want to get down on our face just at the thought of the fact that you have always been. I mean, you just deserve all infinite reverence for infinity because there's none like you. I ask, Lord, that we would see you for who you are as we we think about this very, very necessary subject tonight. I ask these things for your honor and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We are, as we consider these this subject today in episode 70, How Shall We Escape? You know, it's always a good idea to pay attention to warning signs. Warning, high voltage, beware of the dog, falling rocks, wet floor, and they go on and on. There's a lot to be careful about in this world that we live. There are the warnings, however, of men. And then there are the warnings of God. I mean, if you're going to listen to the warnings of men, that's a good idea. But it is a great idea to consider the warnings of God because God is not a person to be trifled with. It's been, I don't know, 150 years more since men have proclaimed the love of God with almost no righteousness of God. And there's always good preachers in every season, but they just get fewer and fewer as the as the centuries roll by. But let us look today at some warnings from God. One is in Hebrews chapter one, verses one through four. There we read in in Hebrews one. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. And let's stop right there for a minute. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers of the prophets, in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways. I mean, from the, we see God speaking through a man named Noah who condemned the world of his time. He said a flood was coming. You know, I'm sure they mocked him 120 years in the building of the ark. Mocking the way men of God have always been. Mocked for telling the truth. While men believe a lie, they mock themselves. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap, the scripture says in Galatians. And so, whether it's a Noah or a Moses who brings the law, and boy, how that law is mocked today, everything is always mockery. But God spoke, He spoke through the prophets of Israel. After Israel became a nation, destroying Egypt in the process, and all the nations of the, at that time knew what had happened. And some of them fled in fear. And then there's the Tower of Babel where the languages actually changed. People couldn't understand each other. That must have been a day, right? And now we got all the languages and people are talking about evolution of different cultures. Just always lie upon lie upon lie while God stands and tells the truth all the time. And so the prophets foretelling the coming of the Messiah, Jesus comes and Jesus has been rejected now for 2,000 years. It just goes on. And so he continues as he, in verse 2 in Hebrews chapter 1 and says, In these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So all that God created, he then puts on human flesh to show the love that men always speak about. And he walks as a man and he goes to the cross and he gives his life. And he, he that man Jesus is appointed heir of everything. Of course, he made it all. And he made it possible for men to enjoy it all. But he's the heir. And it says, in the remainder of that verse, through whom he also made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory, his own glory, the glory of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the exact representation of his nature, You know, the nature is the thing from which the character is established. God's nature is good. You know, he saw the creation as he made it at that time before the fall, and he said it was good. It couldn't be anything else but good because God is good and he only makes good. You look at a tree and you you tell the tree by the fruit that it bears. You can tell God's fruit because he makes good. Now you look at the world and that's what the devil and man in, uh, a co- together in this project of sin have changed and, and altered so that you have not only physical and curses that have altered the condition of the world and of people, but you have the character of sin that has altered the image of God as it should be seen in man, but it's not. It's a vague, unfamiliar character of God that we see in ourselves and in all men. It's distorted. There isn't a part of man that is not distorted in what he is, as he's a man who's separated from the God who created him. He is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels to the extent that he has inherited a more excellent name than they. Get the picture. A god who is El Elyon, The God who's everywhere present at the same time. I mean, he's everywhere. We can't conceive of infinite, the infinite, and he's there. He's everywhere. But he takes to himself the body of a created being, a man. Mankind. We all have been given these bodies by God, and he becomes like the one he created. I mean, it's just too, again, it's always impossible to comprehend the depth that Jesus, Almighty God, went to condescend to what we are as a finite created being. And here he sits. He's sitting in that that condition. Think of the sacrifice. Would you do that? Were you infinite, in control of everything, need nothing, completely joyful in perfection of holy goodness, and then you become... Like the created, even even a sinless created being, it's still a create, created being. And this is what where God is, this is who he is. This is what he did. To reveal himself. To do something which in, doesn't even make sense to us as why an infinite God that needs nothing would do such a thing. But God did something. There are numerous reasons why he did it the bride of Christ, the gift from the Father to the Son, they have great meaning and significance which we can't comprehend. But he did it because we know that God can't lie and he tells the truth. Why? It's in his book and if you know the Bible the way a man who studies the Bible for years comes to know it, who's been regenerated, who's born again, who's infilled with the Holy Spirit of God, so there's no doubt about what it says or what it means or how glorious God is to to write such a book, taking over 1,200 years to write it over 40 different authors, three different languages, and it's completely unified. I mean, it's, it's impossible. It's a miracle. The Bible is a miracle. God never speaks louder or more clear than when he himself speaks. Hear that? God never speaks louder or more clear than when he himself speaks. And he spoke loudest through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is God. And the perfect representation, as we just read, of his nature. There's his attributes, and then there's his nature, which is perfect justice and righteousness, perfect love and mercy, grace, love, to perfection. To perfection. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 is really where this idea of this sermon is coming out of. It's these verses, and in particular, this phrase that I'm focusing on. But look, for this reason, he says in chapter 2 and verse 1, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away from it. Did you get that? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Men might be listening to this. I don't know if there's any women listening to this. But men, when your wife is talking to you and you got your face in the newspaper or the sports page or the TV's on and she's talking and they're just words and you know that she's saying something but you don't know what it is, this is saying don't do that. Don't even approach doing that, women. If you're, I don't know if women are capable of not listening. You, women always listen to one another. They're not even, I don't think, made not to do such a thing. But this applies to women because women can just as equally not pay attention to the word of God, just as easily. And and the word of God is God speaking. God spoke. He, we just read that he spoke through the prophets, but now he spoke through his son. Don't let it just be words out there in the distance and not penetrate your mind and your heart and your emotions and your will. Catch it all. Why? For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it like a boat tied to the shore. And it comes loose, and the man's in it asleep, and it drifts out, so he doesn't know which way to land is. And if he can't navigate through the stars or through the sun, he's lost. And you can go out to sea, and you're done. This is saying, do not drift away. Verse 2, For the word For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. So here comes the the giving of the law and the angels, as we're told, give out the law through Moses and through that law given through angels proved unalterable. And every violation and act of disobedience received a just punishment. For 40 years, the children of Israel came out. They saw the signs. They saw the wonders. They hear the law. Didn't like it. Didn't didn't even matter to them. Didn't even hear it. Just went their way. Did their thing. You know, whether it was lust or idolatry or adultery, you know, whatever it was, complaining incessantly 10 times God brought judgment and wiped out an entire generation. It was the second generation that went into the promised land. The whole generation was lost, except for a little remnant of people, as always. As always. So the point here is, if the angels were proved unalterable, and every violation and act of disobedience received the just punishment, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How will we escape? That's the question. Uh, as the writer to the Hebrews go on, goes on throughout this letter, and he's proving the significance of the high priestly order of Jesus Christ. Chapter after chapter, he's just he's weaving this web that's so strong, so powerful to contain any bug, you know, that could possibly get into it. You know that uh, a spider's web is so strong. You look at it, you know it's so tiny, and you try to break one down when you see it on the wall. I mean, you can turn it into something to throw away, but breaking it is another thing. If, if you had a spider's web, and it may be a specific spider, but they're all strong, there's a spe- there's a spider's web that if it was one inch thick, scientists, you know how they figure things, one inch thick. Think about how that could stop a 747 in mid-flight. Think about the strength of that. This this is what he's weaving together through the book of Hebrews as you go from chapter to chapter and you see where the children of Israel and the writer is saying, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In chapter 3, we're in chapter 2 here. In chapter 3, he's telling not to harden your hearts. He's saying there's another day. He's telling us not to drift away from it. He talks about in chapter 6 that we must go on. And In chapter 7, he's talking about the high priestly ministry of Christ. and He continues to, to, to just weave this story with all of these tentacles reaching out, which is all about the goodness of God, the the chance that God gives to mankind, the, the prophecies that he tells, the book that he writes, the son who he sent. And then we get to chapter 10, just preceding chapter 11, where he talks about what faith looks like and how men were persecuted and they just continued, no matter what, It just... The faith drives the saint to his death, where he receives glory. But in chapter 10, verses 26 to 31, he says this, For if we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If we go on sinning willfully, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. There's one sacrifice for sins, that's Jesus Christ. To go on sinning willfully is to set that sacrifice aside as if it didn't matter and it didn't count, and just go straight into your life just like nothing ever changed. And evidently nothing does in the life of people who receive the gospel of Christ, and they're like the sower who sows the seeds and they fall either on dry soil, and they're quickly snatched up by the birds, or else they grow up, and the, 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 the matters of life, the sufferings of life, the temptations and trials of life, just choke it out until it's worthless. And then there's good soil. You know, so is it bad soil? If it's bad soil then the person just willfully goes on sinning. You know, there was a time when the church understood that a man was only saved by the transformation of his life. He's, he used to curse and swear and he used to sleep around and he, and he used to be an idol worshiper and maybe he was moral and he was very religious, but he didn't know the one true God. And one way or another, there's a transformation that turns him into a different person willing to die for Christ. Verse 27 says, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. So the end result of a person who goes on sinning willfully is just the terrifying expectation of judgment, the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries, except for those who are deluded to think they're in the kingdom while they're not. There's no been no great transformation. They haven't been born again. They're not a regenerate new being. They're not a new creation. Old things are passing away. Old things become new. It's just a mental delusion and thinking we're something that we're not. That's who he's talking to right here. And he goes on in verse 28 and says, anyone who has ignored the law of Moses is put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is something done by men. In the time of Israel, they found a man and he was breaking the Sabbath and he was stoned to death at the word of God. Why? That's a terrible thing. I mean, he's making a fire and he's stoned to death because it's the Sabbath? That was just a warning. That's just a mortal death. You're breaking the law. It doesn't matter what the law is. If it's making fire on the Sabbath, or it's eating a forbidden fruit. If God said don't do it, that's the law. Well, that sounds like a cruel God, but we're not viewing the God who went to the cross to save men from their sins. Right now, we're viewing men who ignore God. Or who think they're in the kingdom when in fact they're not. There's been no change. Verse 29, how much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve? Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Now the man who makes a fire on the Sabbath. The Sabbath is the day of rest. And in Hebrews, the same book in chapter 4, it makes it clear that we have a Sabbath rest and that rest is Christ. That rest puts a man to labor no more to earn salvation because he knows the only way is through the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so that's put to rest. And so that's the Sabbath now. It's not like you can't make a fire on on Sunday on Saturday now, but don't trample underfoot the Son of the living God. Because it's the same thing. And you don't, you know, not only are you going to expect, and you expect to be stoned to death and then like it's over, which it's not, but then there's a fiery, a fiery fury which will consume the adversaries. Consumption for eternity. I mean, I'm not making this up, I'm not writing this, I'm just reading what God has said. And this says, how much more severe punishment do you think he will deserve? Who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Trampled underfoot. Oh yeah, I know Jesus. And he doesn't. He's making a mockery or attempting or unintentionally, but there's a mocking of God. God will not be mocked. Because he's righteous and holy and good and just and true. To, to a fiery, consuming God. That's the point. I mean, you really want to live in a universe like we live on Earth? You want to do that forever? Where we come and we go? Where we live and we die? Where there's a curse? And the planet, You can't if you don't bring it in under control, if you don't build machinery that can move dirt, I mean, you either freeze to death, or you burn in the heat, or you get eaten by an animal, or whatever it is. You want to live like that forever? That's not the plan. This is just an environment that's a picture of the fact that what God's curses look like. This is nothing compared to eternity. But that's what how holy God is. You gotta get it in mind, we're not evolved. And it isn't God's of irrational religions that depict that no matter how god is and how severe they might pain him you can still be good and work your way to heaven what what kind of what kind of what is that what does that mean so god brings all of this on us but we're really good and we can be good enough to earn heaven god brings all of this on us because we're sinners and we can't earn heaven that's why god is this is extreme because our sin is actually extreme. I mean, if there is a God, I know there is, but for anyone who would be hearing this, if there is a God, just how awful would it be to nail him to a cross? He creates everything good. Man destroys it, blames God for it, and then nails him to a cross. That's a little, little tiny taste of how God feels about how we are towards him. You know, the most awful thing that a person can, by psychologists, can experience is having a spouse cheat on you. I mean, they say it's worse than death the death of a loved one. Because it goes on and on, and there's this this abandonment, uh, uh, the the breaking of a covenant, you know, to death do his part. You know, people deal with this all the time. And they ignore it and they get angry at their spouse and there's all this stuff that goes on and there's murders that take place. Why? Because relationships are so important. And you know, in the Bible, God compares adultery with idolatry. Idolatry is worshiping something other than the one true God. No, it's not one God for all. There's The false prophets that have been preaching false gods and condemning it for thousands of years. Now they want to tell us it's all the same God. It's not. There's false gods. That in the Bible is called idolatry. First commandment. Thou shalt not make any graven image. And you shall not even make any image in your mind of philosophy of a false religion which is about a false god. That's idolatry. And idolatry to God is like adultery. A person who worships a false god is like a spouse going out And then committing adultery with someone other than them. Nothing more hurtful than that. And God is love to perfection. And so committing adultery on Him brings that much hurt, that much pain, that much abandonment. Because God is infinite. We're not, but we're hurting Him to the depths that He can be hurt. That might be hard to comprehend, but it's not uh, wrong to say that, because that's who God is. He's infinite in all his ways, and that includes love. And when he went to the cross, and he was this consuming fire, he took out, he took out that fury on himself in the sun, in order as a sacri- living sacrifice to save men from and women from their sins. This is no small thing. You know, is it in your ear? Is it like a a hundred feet away and you can't really bail, you make it out? You know, is that what it sounds like to you? Is it not clear? Because that's saying, look, don't neglect this thing. Do not neglect this. Every unalterable words spoken, received a just punishment. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? In verse 29, I read 29, how shall we escape? How severe a punishment do you think we will deserve who have trampled underfoot the Son of God and have regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace. So a person who deludes himself, a person who thinks that he's in the kingdom, even though his life hasn't changed, he can't really look at himself and say, man, I was that way, and oh my gosh, I can't believe the way I was, and I know I still fall so far short. God, help me. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Make me holy. I don't want to disappoint you anymore. I don't want to hurt you anymore. Now, he He carried the weight of the penalty of sin. He, he bore the grief on the cross. But the Holy Spirit can still be grieved, even in the sins, until they're washed under the blood. And so when he grieves, and the Holy Spirit brings conviction upon a true believer, the true believer is undone. He's broken. And he cries out and he says, God, forgive me. There's an evidence of true salvation. I mean, the guilty con- conscience can't be lived with until he confesses his sin and he brings it before God. But the person who just tramples on God always, and you know, he can see something he's wrong, and he might even say he's sorry, and there's no change, and there's no real conviction, and there's no brokenness broken in spirit because he knows how empty and how hateful he still can be. It's not there in a person who is self-deceived. So God continues, and after this insult takes place, in verse 29 and verse 30, says, For we know who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, his people are in two basic categories today. His people are Jews who have not recognized Jesus Christ and Messiah and Christians who have not recognized Jesus as Messiah. They call themselves Christians. Maybe they grow grow up in in a family of Christians, but, you know, they're not there. They... Forsake the way, but they deluded that they're okay. Or maybe they're Christians and they've walked an the aisle, they've prayed a prayer, and they did something that made them think that they were in the kingdom, but there's no transformation. There's no new life. It is a terrifying thing, he concludes this section with, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So tell me, how is it that I am always hearing how Christians aren't perfect? Just today, I was reading from a Christian publication and it said, you can't rely upon pastors, earthly fathers, and and Christians. They, They will all disappoint you. And this was talking about children, or people who Become Christian. They'll all disappoint you. Appoint you only keep your eyes on Jesus. Well, you know, if that's true, and it is true that Christians aren't perfect, but let me ask the question, why did the Apostle Paul write in his letter to the church in Corinth in chapter 11 and verse 1, Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Why did he say such a thing? You know, it's almost abhorrent. It's almost sacrilegious to to Christian people today to to think like that. Like, how pride pride can you be? I mean, we know we're not perfect. Nobody's perfect. This is the Word of God, and the Apostle Paul was inspired by God To write this. The Apostle Paul understood this to be true. Otherwise he wouldn't have wrote it. And then God make it. The scriptures. The holy scriptures. Became the Bible. Be imitators of me. Just as I also am of Christ. You know what that means? That means that. Imperfection. Does not mean. Some people. Are actually. Imitators. To the extent that they can say to others, imitate me. That's a Christian. That's a person who is experiencing and has experienced regeneration to the point that they have seen their life changing over years. person who gets saved at 14 years old and then he's 69 and he's going to turn around and say, well, we're not perfect. And you know, don't look, keep your eyes on me. I mean, just keep your eyes on Jesus. I'll disappoint you. That person should stop and think long and hard about whether or not they are a true believer. If after all those years, you can't look back and say, I'm just not doing the same things I used to do. I am not the man I used to be. I am not anything like that man that I used to be. If you can't say that after all those years, I would say take a long, hard look at whether or not you're a Christian. I don't mean to strike fear into the hearts of people who really are Christians. But if you really are a Christian, and I went through this like 25 years ago, after having come to, and I'm not saying not 25 years ago, I was 69, but 25 years ago, I went through a poor part. Where I've had assurance of salvation for many years up to then, but then I started to look hard at what a real Christian should be like and how they should be living, and it tore me down. And I lost assurance of salvation for about a year. I got it back. I got it back about twice as more, as much. But the, I had. It, I went through that. You know, test yourself to see whether you're being in the faith. Is a scripture verse. And it's meant for people so they don't wind up in this position where they cannot escape for eternity, thinking they were in. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in, in your name? And in your name did many wonderful miracles, and in your name cast out demons. And Jesus will say to them, I never knew you. Yeah, that's, that's going to be the worst day ever. Worst day ever. Be imitators of me. My answer to this is this. The gospel has been so altered. Why people would say such a thing, that we're not perfect, has been so altered during the last 300 years, approximately approximately 300 years, and the measure of a Christian is no longer one who experiences a transformed heart. An experience. Transformed experience. No, instead, it is repeatedly thought that the Christian is a person who is just like he was. I mean, somebody just got chided in the Christian community for saying there, there is no change. Doesn't mean any change. How dare any pastor say such a thing? And it's not to me for me to say how dare, but I'm sure God's saying it. A Christian is not a person who says, I'm a Christian. A Christian is a person whom God says, you're a Christian. Our admonition is this, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? God's admonition is this, how shall you escape if you neglect so great a of salvation. Neglect begins with the church, it begins with church leaders. If you're in church, I don't know what kind of church, I don't know how many people are listening to this, but if you're in a church, uh, ask yourself a few questions. Do, do, the, do you hear a message that content, condemns apathy and asserts urgency? Or are you in a church that asserts apathy And condemns urgency. Is the church taught as to hold the status quo and move cautiously as to not rock the boat or ruffle any feathers? Now, caution is a good thing. But to not ruffle any feathers, you cannot teach the gospel, preach the gospel, live the gospel without ruffling feathers. The gospel is too potent. It's too too straight an arrow. Does the message you hear instruct you to seek Christ passionately and obediently, no matter whose sensibilities are disturbed? I I hope so. I hope that's the message you're listening to. Now there are people who to go to those kinds of extremes, but they still miss the love of God, the love of Christ, the, the the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness. I mean, all of this has to be included in the message, in the teaching, in the experience of the Christian. If your heart doesn't burst within you and cry from time to time for the lost, for sinners, sinners in a wayward path. I mean, then you have to question also. It's not just about a strong word, it's about a a loving word. Paul was standing on Mars Hill, the premier spot for the intellectuals of his day. And he said to them, I quote his disturbing words. I'm quoting his disturbing words. Quote, Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now that... That would have struck their heart. You're calling me ignorant? It would strike anybody today, too, in our intellectual uh, culture. But that's what he said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is, this I proclaim to you. So I know what it is, but you're living in ignorance. Then he goes on. Speaking of God, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Now think about that in the context of the prejudiced world in which we live. Country goes, at war against country. On and on and on. Why? Well, they're different. They're not like me. Let's kill them. What did Paul say? We all came from one man. We all go back to Adam. It's a joke. The prejudice in this world. Except for the part that it's sending people to hell because they think themselves better than their neighbor. Paul pointed it out on Mars Hill. Then he says that they would seek God if perhaps they might feel around for him and find him. Now these are just uh, you know paraphrases from... You know there's the sermon he preached on Mars Hill and I'm, I'm putting these points because they're all they're scattered all through his message. What did he just say? He just said that they would seek God if perhaps they might feel around from like a blind man might feel around for him and find him. I mean he's calling them blind. They went from ignorant to blind. Though he is not far from each one of us. So he's really close, but you can't, you can't even find him. So, having overlooked the times of ignorance, he's back to being, he's calling them ignorant again, people on earth, in, from generations of ignorance, really, how God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent. Now, the only people who repent are people who have done something wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's just, that's repentance. Repentance is to turn around. I, I'm, do, I'm headed in the wrong direction. I'm doing, doing things the wrong way. I'm displeasing God. I'm hurting people. Repent of it. Now he's calling them to repent. Because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed having f- furnished... Proof to all people by raising him from the dead. So you see, the righteousness by which he's judging all men is the life that Christ lived. 33 years as a man, first time on this earth, never committed one sin. No sin in thought, no sin in deed, no sin of attitude, no sin emotionally. No s- sin of choice. Nothing. No sin one time. And he'll go through all eternity just the way he's been in an internal state, never breaking his own righteous judgments. So he was raised from the dead and that is the righteousness by which all men will be judged. So what I want to do now Is close this message up with seven cautionary warnings from the Bible for people who especially think themselves to be Jewish or a Christian and if you're a Jew you can be a biological Jew. But are you a a Jew in faith? The faith of Abraham? Or are you if you're a Christian, are you a Christian in, in deed and word and not just word? These warnings, warnings aren't meant to condemn anyone now. But they will one day. Number one, watch your speech. This is telltale. These are all telltale warnings. I mean, if something isn't changing in you, listen, listen to these, okay? Matthew chapter 12, verses 36 and 37 But I tell you that for every careless word that people speak, they will give an account of it on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now the Christian who's under the blood will have lived a life transformed so that the words will tell the tale, and the tale will be good. Number two, watch your anger. Matthew five twenty two says, "But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court, and whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into fire, the fiery hell, into hellfire." Now look, just we went from words. Now we're talking about something that may not even be seen. It's in your mind, it's in your conscience, it's in your heart, and it keeps coming up and up and up, and you're always angry. This is like an un, This is like an a sequential anger. You know, it just goes and it never never stops. This isn't a person who stops being angry, and goes and goes and goes, and maybe takes a little fall, and he repents. Oh, I did that. And the older he gets and the older he gets, the less angry he gets and the less angry. And I have a certain amount of anger that I have to control with, with preaching, with preachers, with leaders. When I, I go through life and I see what the Bible says and it's horrendous what, what men do to really disform what the Bible says sometimes. So I got I to gotta confess that from time to time. And so, again, no perfection but I can tell you, in the years of my life, from time I was 14 to right now, 69, there has been a huge change in anger. Three, watch the love of money. Watch your love of money. Luke 16, 13, and 15, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one to one and despise the other you cannot serve god and wealth and he said to them you are the ones who justify yourselves in the sight of people but god knows your hearts and this is jesus speaking because that which is highly esteemed among people is detestable in the sight of god Basically, what he's saying is you can't fool God. You can do your things with money. You can do what you want with money, but God knows the heart. You can't fool God. I don't know what condition you are with money. I don't know whether there's love for it or not. It's not up to me. I'm not the judge. It doesn't matter. But there's a judge who does, and you can't play games with God. You cannot play games with God. Don't do it. If you're not even sure... Test yourself out, whatever it takes. Put yourself to the test. Number four, watch your pride. Quote, 1 Timothy 1, 1, 2, and 6. It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer, then, must not be a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. Condemnation incurred by the devil. The condemnation was become conceited. He fell through pride. If you're in a leadership in a church, watch your pride, especially. Because this verse is for those people. If you're religious, make sure you're saved. Make sure you are saved. Number five, watch your worries. Watch your worries. But be on your guard, quote, Luke 21, 34 to 36. But be on your guard so that your hearts will not be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the worries of life and that this day will not come on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the earth. But stay alert at all times, praying that you will have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. I don't know how you interpret prophetic passages. And I'm not here to translate this and exposit this, these verses. It's just telling us to be on our guard and to not be weighed down with drunkenness and dissipation and the worries of life. And that's what people do. They soften the blow in a myriad of ways. He's using drunkenness as one. You can use entertainment. You can use church. You can use anything to make you think that you're in another place or you're another person. Don't do it. Run to Christ and stop worrying. Watch your fears, number six. Matthew 10, 28, and Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Watch your fears. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. That's Jesus so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. This is not just talking about fear. This is talking about fear that causes people to be bound in slavery, slavery to sin. That's what's going on here. And then in Matthew, it says, And do not be afraid of those who will kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. This is contrasting what people can do to us versus what hell can do to us. And so fearing a multitude of things, can bring a person into slavery to sin. And by the way, unbelief is the big sin. And if you're not running to Christ, if you're not running to God with the fear to get rid of it, then there's only one other place you can go, and that's to hell through Satan. And that's slavery to sin. When you run to God in Christ Your sins are washed away. They're made clean. They don't exist anymore in the mind and heart of God. Lastly, seven, watch your doubts. The rite of Hebrews sums up the wilderness wanderings of Israel. Hebrews 3, 16 through 19, and he says this. For who provoked him when they had heard? Indeed, did not all those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he angry? For 40 years. That's lifetime. Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? Here it comes. But to those who are disobedient. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Unbelief all these sins that I just went through for the Christian or the Jew someone who's familiar with the law of God and the and the son of God <clears throat> such a person goes to hell because of unbelief the sins continue because of unbelief the unrepentance remains because of unbelief the sins are not washed away in the blood because of unbelief the pride remains unbelief Because of unbelief. The inability to see oneself as they actually are instead of what they make themselves to be by delusion and pride. Because of unbelief. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Dear Heavenly Father, this is intense. Not because I'm saying it. It's intense because of the verses of the Bible and what they say. What you mean for them to say. It's intense. And it should be intense. And it should drive the hearers of these verses to Christ. In urgency. There's no place, Lord, we know. In your word, in reality, there's no place for apathy. Only urgency. Jonathan Edwards preached it so many years ago. And he gave those unbelievable pictures of men standing over the the flames of hell, and they could drop in at any time. Lord, it's no less true today as it was then. In the 1700s, he preached that sermon. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Lord, I ask, Lord, for the church today that men would rise up and they would start calling sin, sin again. They would stop preaching only the love of God and start preaching the righteousness of God in hell itself. And the the need for sinners to repent and run, run to the cross where Christ died. I ask your Heavenly Father if there's anyone listening to this that they might feel the weight of their sins their conscience be, be bother them so much that they have no alternative but to run to Christ. For Christian brothers and sisters that we might also carry the urgency to share this gospel with the world with everyone around us. I ask these things for your honor and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.